The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. In the world of body image, the internet is often divided into two schools of thought, kind of. It's definitely not this simple, but for a moment, let's pretend like it is. On one side, you have what I'll call the body positivity movement. People who are working to eliminate body shame, who want more inclusion models and advertising, and who generally want the conversation around bodies just to be more accepting. On the other side, we'll have who I'll call the health first movement. This is a group that says things like, well, you're so worried about avoiding body shame that you're saying it's okay to be unhealthy. This group doesn't necessarily want shame to be involved, but they're more concerned about lowering obesity rates. And they worry that this kind of inclusivity that the body positive movement is working for might not help with that. In this ongoing debate, you hear a lot of the same words over and over again. Shame, healthy, guilt, body positivity. But it doesn't seem like everyone is saying the same thing when they use those words. Everyone has a different idea of what healthy is or shame. And that can make it really hard to have an honest conversation about what we can do better. So in this episode of The Lisa Show, I wanna clear the air a little bit. I had a great conversation with Mark David, founder of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. I've learned that despite the fact that around the world we're all different, Mm -hmm. oftentimes when it comes to food and body, especially our food and body challenges, we're a bit the same. As well as a discussion with the Council of Moms, which this week consists of my friends Tamalyn and Julie. I'm Tamalyn Christian. I have um, four kids, two of each. I am Julie Taylor. I have four kids. And this is a big day for me because it's the first day I'm wearing real pants since November. (laughs) And I'm going to play you parts of those conversations so we can hear how they've struggled with loving their bodies and about how we can get to the right frame of mind to start doing better. I would love to know what your perspective is on shame and body image and why you can't talk about body image without talking about shame. Where do you think that that comes from? I think it's because it's so deep. It messes with our inherent sense of worth and value in the world. And when you go that deep and you mess with your actual sense of worth and value as a human being, it, it's intense. Yeah. And here's what Mark had to say. I think on a certain level, Shame and guilt are inborn, um, meaning they help us at the most core level with our moral compass, meaning you've committed a crime, you're in court, and you're guilty, and the judge says, guilty. And so guilt helps us understand that our actions have consequences. You know, shame is has a little bit of a different tonality to it. Shame is often about me as a person as opposed to my actions. So the judge doesn't say, judge says guilty, the judge doesn't say shame. Hmm. Now I can feel shame about my body. I can feel shame about my looks. So that's not necessarily an action. It's just about who I am. So again, on the one hand, shame and guilt, I think, are meant to help us use our moral compass, but those two are easily 
um, conditioned into us to aim it against ourselves, especially when it comes to food and especially when it comes to body. And I think that's really our exposure to the world. If you look at some of the early Disney movies that you saw as a child, you have impossibly thin little princesses, impossible bodies to emulate. So we're swimming in a sea of images that are telling us, whether we realize it or not, that your body needs to look like this in order for you to be lovable, acceptable, and to have all the goodies. Mm. And then we look and we see, huh, I'm looking in the mirror and that's not me. So we often go into shame. I had an advertising class in college and we watched a video uh, from start to finish. The model shows up, they get her ready, they put on her makeup, they take pictures of her. And then it showed the whole process of um, the graphic designers going in and making all the, you know, trimming here, enhancing here. And I, it sounds a little bit naive, but I was 20 years old before I realized that, you know, like probably 100% of the women in ads, they, it's not, it's fake. It's not real. They don't really look like that. And uh, that was so valuable for me. Because I just yeah. thought they're really, you know, you think there are perfect people out there that you're comparing yourself to. And uh, they really don't exist. They really don't. You know, I have mixed feelings and a visceral reaction when Tamalin and other people say something about like perfect people. Because on the surface, obviously she's right. No one is perfect. But for a long time, I've told people that I'm a recovering perfectionist and it's kind of a joke, you know, but also kind of not. Because there's always this little voice in my head that says, yeah, but what about like doing your best? And how do you know when you're really working hard enough to do your best? And so even though I know perfection is technically out of reach, and I don't demand it on other people, I still feel like inside of me, if I do a little bit more, if I try a little bit harder, then I I couldn't really make it work. Now, this standard of perfectionism for myself, but not for others, started when I was younger, and I just wanted to achieve. And so I remember getting my math worksheets in second grade and handing them in first. Like you could always tell who handed them in first. Um, It was usually between me and John Hess. Or, you know, as I got older, getting the best grades and just being really proud that that was part of my identity. And in high school, I wanted to take as many AP classes as I could and be in all the clubs and make all the student council elections and achieve. And it's really funny because instead of fueling me, I got really burned out. And at the time, I didn't think that it was perfectionism, right? I just used the euphemism best or I'm just doing my best to cover up the unsustainable schedule and expectation that I put on myself. Oh, and also it was um, never enough. There were always more things to do. So I was just sort of everywhere. And by the time I had gotten the scholarship and gone to college, I didn't want to do all of those things anymore. I just wanted to be, right, and really discover some loves in that time. And I spent my time reading and thinking and doing improv and things that you honestly can't be the best at, but just have you have to be in the flow of it. 
And so I thought I had really overcome that, but it creeps up in different areas of my life. And I don't think that tendency ever really goes away if you ignore it. You guys, (laughs) I once got a B minus in college and I cried. I cried when I told my friend that because I was so disappointed in myself. Like, you know, like, I could have done better. She laughed at me and rightfully so. I was so caught up in the sort of like doing it right and taking advantage of every opportunity, right? And I've really struggled with it in other areas too, like in homemaking, how I set up or clean my house, even my hobbies, my career. I just wanted to be the best or do my best. And that can easily turn into unhealthy expectations of perfectionism for myself if I'm not intentional about it. Even when we recognize that we're struggling with shame and perfectionism, it can be impossible to stop. Mark gave me a great explanation of why that's so hard. You know, in a way, perfectionism is like the dark opposite of shame. So if I'm feeling ashamed, I'm feeling terrible about myself. I don't like my body. I don't like my existence. Hey, I've got a solution. I'm going to be perfect. (laughs) Right. That'll fix everything. That'll fix everything because (laughs) if you're perfect, think about it for a moment. Perfect implies I am above and beyond all criticism. Mm. Nobody can shame me if I'm perfect. Nobody can criticize me if I'm perfect. How could you dislike me? I'm perfect. So we, I think perfectionism is a virus. It's a viral belief. Hmm. We believe in the existence of perfectionism. And perfectionism, it's a soul killer. Because what happens is people think, oh, I know. I need the perfect body. And the perfect body means I need to lose 35 pounds and 15 of those pounds has to be lost from this part of the body. Mm -hmm. So people get a number in their head that they invent. Oh, yeah. And then we convince ourselves that if I hit that number, then I'm at my perfect weight and everything is going to be wonderful. All my problems are going to be solved. I'm going to live happily ever after. And... It's a wonderful childlike wish, but it's not true. So what happens is I have to follow my perfect diet perfectly in order to hit my perfect weight. Now, how many people are perfect? How many people have ever followed a perfect diet perfectly? So what inevitably happens is I stray Mm -hmm. because I can't just eat no sweets for the rest of my life or I can't go no fat for the rest of my life or I'm going to go to a party or I'm going to be at a holiday dinner. I'm going to eat something and then I crash. And then I realize, oh my God, I'm not perfect. I'm actually terrible. So always around the corner from perfectionism is actually self-abuse because at some point we realize I'm not perfect and then we punish ourselves for it. And then eventually we get back on our horse. Okay, I can do this again. And it's sort of a never-ending cycle vacillating between I feel ashamed because I couldn't stay perfect. And then somehow I go through my shame journey and now I'm done with it and I can get back to being perfect. And that perfect state, usually we're not very available. If we're caught in perfectionism, In a way, you're sleeping with it. It's your lover. It's your wife. It's your husband. It's your everything. Mm. 
And we're less available for intimacy. We're less available to our friends, our family, our loved ones, because perfectionism grips us. I feel like by defining terms like shame, guilt, and perfectionism, we're able to reclaim a little control over our relationship with our bodies. Having a good, clear understanding of how they can pull us into that dark cycle is the first step towards avoiding that cycle altogether. But it's just that, the first step. In later episodes in this series, we're going to dive into specific aspects of our body image, how we talk about food, why we struggle with exercise, how our bodies change over time. But before I dive into the nitty-gritty of diets, workouts, and pregnancies in those episodes, I want to be in the right frame of mind. I want to know if body positivity, body neutrality, body negativity, uh, probably not, or whatever other collection of internet buzzwords is the right attitude to have before I start figuring out if cellulite is something I should actually be worried about. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. Julie is one of those people in my life who, after going through a lot, seems to be in a good place in terms of how she sees her body. So I asked her what works for her. I feel like I have found the most peace in body neutrality and just kind of adopting the idea that, like, it's just none of my business. Like Now, I have to interrupt you right now because I'm a Gen Xer. <laughs> and the, I have, you know, done my research about body neutrality, but we didn't talk about that. Like, until the last, it seems, few years. What does body neutrality mean for you? For me, I, I don't claim to know the official definition. No, 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 no but yeah, how it But I for think, you. for me, the, like, there's been body positivity, and I still found myself kind of fixating on my body or conditionally accepting it, like, as long as it was performing the way I wanted it to or looking the way that I wanted to, or I could find peace with it. And then there was the body despising, which I wanted to work through. And neutrality, to me, is just... Literally just kind of deciding, it's just not my business to have an opinion on it. Like, I'm going to just not have feelings. And so when I start to, <laughs> I have feelings, but I, when I start to really fixate on it, I just kind of slip out and think, you know what, this isn't what I want to use my capacity for. I don't want to use my brain to think about this. I don't want to use my creativity and my mind and my energy to worry about this. So I'm just going to assign it to someone else. It's an obscure person, but I'm choosing neutrality. So I'm not, I don't love it. It's not something that like I find super empowering, um, but it's also not something that ruins my day anymore. So it's just kind of this middle ground. How, how long have you been living with body neutrality? It's been about five years. And what got you to that point where you were like, ooh, this is for me? I think going to both ends of the other spectrum, like really being in negativity around my body and letting it really control my whole life. And then going to the other spectrum of like embracing that body positivity in the way that it looked for me was just really like having to fixate on it and celebrate it. And and I was actually running one day and I thought the there's the some mentality that helps some people is like, but look what my body can do for me. Look where my body takes me. Look what it helps me accomplish. And I know a lot of moms connect with that. Of like, look at these children. And and I just had the thought of like, I'm not always going to be able to run like this. And I want to still appreciate my body when it doesn't show up for me the way that I want. And I think we've all experienced that through injury or sickness or whatever, mm -hmm. infertility. We've experienced our bodies not doing for us what we want them to do. And I wanted to be able to find peace even in those times. And so that kind of 
the middle ground. I, I think I overcorrected and then kind of <laughs> settled in the middle of just, it's not my business. Wow. I think that's so interesting, especially like ascribing it to somebody else to determine it. Yeah, like, I have like Nancy Tabitha. Tabitha, Tabitha, Tabitha handles it. Like, yeah, in my mind, it was like, I was like, Nan- what does Nancy say? Yeah, <laughs> Tabitha's going to handle it. Like, I get ready for the day. Yeah. And that's the time that I assign managing what I look like or whatever. And then yeah. I'm just like, okay, and now I'm going to go do my day. And it's not something that I'm going to choose to carry with I'm me. I'm not going to keep thinking about it. I'm not going to keep going back to it. Yeah. It's all that energy, isn't it? I think yeah. about energy, talking about it, thinking about it. I mean, which is essentially what we're doing right now. In <laughs> a different context. Lisa. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I am con- um, concerned about like, Okay, sometimes when we talk about our bodies or our body image, we're using different definitions, we're using different terms. And we're, and so we're sometimes unknowingly having different conversations about it when we think we're having the same conversation. Definitely, and that's why I think mm-hmm. body positivity looked one way for me, and that's yeah. why it stopped resonating with me, and that's not true for everyone at all. Yeah. yeah. We experience it differently. I want to pause on what Julie just said. We all experience it differently. Things are working for Julie, but they don't work in the same way for me. After our conversation, I spent some time thinking about this idea. I rethought how I feel about my body realistically and why I eat what I eat and when and how and how and why I exercise and how and why I dress and put on makeup and when I look in the mirror and what I think of myself. And I tried to decide how negative, neutral, or positive it was. And it was an interesting little informal social experiment. It wasn't all bad and it wasn't all good. I'm basically, I'm all three, (laughs) depending on the day or the task. But I was aware of the thoughts and attitudes that I might not have been earlier. For example, I was exercising to really punish or control my body. Not good. Um, Not just move it or celebrate it. I mean, and this hasn't always been the case for me. I'm pretty neutral about food. I don't think that they're good or bad foods. It's just fuel for me. And I just really like makeup because it's artistic and fun and not because I think everyone expects it of me. You guys, I'm so complicated. Anyway, at first I was like, well, then what am I? Body positive? Neutral? Negative? Ugh. And what I realized I was doing is just practicing deciding what's right for me instead of just going with whatever I think everyone's doing. Body neutrality might work for me in the future, right? But for now, I want to honor my body. There's something really important about that for me right now. And I realize that the label is probably not necessarily as important as taking control and practicing, being intentional about it. I'm not always good at it, but I see it as more of a mindful practice now. When I talked with Mark, he also had some experience with this. It's all about a person's individual journey. You know, I've spoken to so many people who they are deeply allergic to the concept of loving my body. Right. I've talked to a lot of people like that, too. Yeah. How can I possibly love my body? This is a hunt. I need to lose 125 pounds. How dare you tell me to love Mm -hmm. my body? Okay. On the one hand, in my mind, when I hear that, what I'm thinking is, and this is as a professional who works with other human beings, it is my personal wish and desire for that human being to get to a place where they can self-love and self-accept. Would you tell your child, 
I am not going to love you until you lose your baby fat. Oh my word. No. I mean I am not going to love yeah. you until you have abs of steel and tight mm-hmm. buns or something. Like no, you 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 wouldn't say that to another would you say that to another human being? I'll ask the people that tell me I can't love this body. Do you have friends who have bodies like yours? Yeah. I mean, right. Are you turning Is that, that what you tell them? Mm-hmm. So what happens is there's a certain righteousness in self-hate that happens around the body. Mm. And that righteousness comes from the environment because there's a lot of righteousness around what people should weigh that comes from science, that comes from the experts, that comes from women, it comes from men, it's, it's everywhere. And we take in that righteousness. I have every right to hate on myself. Well, you're spreading hate. Wow. That's how I look at it. Now, some people can't be conceptually because they can't make that leap. It's like, okay, you don't have to love your body. Start to like it. Start to start to treat it with just some some kindness. Because if you want, see, here's the thing. Yeah. If you want to have a different body, if if you're hating this body so much, why do you want to lose weight? You want to lose weight so you can be happier at the end of the day. It's the only reason why anybody wants to lose weight. They want to be happy. Even if they tell you want to be healthier. Well, you want to be healthier because it's going to make you happy. Mm -hmm. So people want to lose weight to make themselves happy. Now we think, well, how am I going to lose weight? I'm going to hate my body. I know. It's so funny. I'm going to diet. I'm going to torture it. I'm going to be mean to it. I'm going to criticize it. (laughs) So how can a journey of self-hate possibly end up in a destination of happiness. The journey always informs the destination. If you want to arrive at a destination of self-love, of happiness, of I feel good about me, then you have to have a, a road that's paved with a little bit of kindness. A big reason that I wanted to take this episode and talk about topics like shame, body neutrality, and body positivity was that a lot of times it seems like we're being positive about our bodies and it feels like a good thing when really we're setting ourselves up for harder struggles down the road. I told Julie and Tamalyn on the Council of Moms about one example of this that I saw in someone really close to me. You know, I had a really good friend who was struggling really hard and with an eating disorder and with self-esteem and had some horrible things going on behind the scenes that most people didn't know. And as a result of that, she was losing a lot of weight, but it wasn't healthy. She wasn't happy. It was not good. And um, she kept getting so much praise for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she just kept, everybody just kept thinking. I mean, you could see it in their eyes when they would say, oh, you look so great. Oh my gosh, what are you doing? You look fabulous. You could see behind their eyes, there was this insinuation of like, Ugh, jealousy, I wish. Yeah. Like, what's your secret? Tell me. Mm-hmm. Like kind of, ugh. And she could feel it too, and it was not helpful. It like keeps you, would, you trapped in it. You you would think, oh, that would help her self esteem or something, mm-hmm. and help her feel good and get out of this dark place. But it actually was hard because she feared getting help because then she wouldn't get any, you know, positive mm-hmm. reinforcement or attention from being right. healthy. Yeah. You've learned it's, that success it's, and it's up. everything is tied to that. And yeah, admiration, everything. I 
I actually, I really relate to the story you just shared because I had an eating disorder and I was so admired for it and so praised for it. And it's really when I gained success professionally is in that time. And so then the story that I created was that if I gain any weight, I will no longer be admired. I will no longer be successful. I will no longer have friends. You know, I really believed that. And as I recovered, actually, but didn't look like recovery to other people, right? I had to really get intentional about showing up as I was and owning that. And that path has actually been a lot more empowering. Like, it's been a lot more empowering to say, I'm going to show up regardless of how I look and understand that it has nothing to do with the experience that I'm going to have. I'm sure at the beginning, though, it was harder. It was terrifying. So how did you push through it? You just... I don't know. I, 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 I think that I changed personalities for a while. I was quiet. I, you know, I really, really did. Like, it took practice. It took practice to say, I'm going to show up anyways. It's been a journey. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's well, and I think it is. And I think the way we talk about it doesn't really reflect that. No, you know? no. And I, I think that that's one of the hard things is I think that we wish that people could share more of the middles of stories because yeah. we always hear about stories uh-huh. at the end. Mm-hmm. But the middle's vulnerable. And if you're not ready to show up in the middle publicly, then you don't need to. But it's easy to say now, like, yeah, just go to the party. and Just do it. Just just be confident. Just talk to people and show up as you are. That's not (laughs) what it looked like. It looked like crying before I went, being insecure the whole time I was there, and then spiraling after. But eventually now I've gotten to the point where I, I know my value is not attached to that, and it allows me a lot of freedom. That freedom that Julia's found is what I want. It's what I want for my kids. And it's what I want for you, for everyone. It's the kind of emotional freedom that will come as we learn and we practice loving our bodies, no matter what superficial state they're in. Here's how Mark puts it. We have to stop making love for the body so conditional. Meaning, body, I'm only going to love you when you look like this and you weigh that. Well, ouch, you I know. Like Again, we don't say that to people that we love. Never. You know, honey, I'm only going to love you if you lost weight or if you're taller or if you look 20 years younger. Like, no, you start loving now. And small acts, and it's a practice. So many people think that they have to win the lottery to love their body. Like, I have to have everything perfect. And then then. the conditions for true love are met. No, anybody can be loved. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by McKay Menden and Becca Hurley with help from Tabitha Freitas. Music and post-production was done by Josh Fouts and Sam Clausen. If you like the show, leave us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Instagram and to join the Lisa Show listener community on Facebook so you can get a behind-the-scenes look at the show, as well as stay up-to-date with Lisa's book club.